You are listening to Combat Ineffective, The War Room. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Combat Ineffective, The War Room. And today we're going to be talking more about the Panchia Resistance. Uh, this is actually starting to become a very interesting fight here. As especially now that the United States has left uh, the area, at least the last flight was supposed to have left. I'm not sure if all of our ground troops are out. It sounds like they are. This is going to make this very different than what it was just a few days ago. Now let me explain why that's going to be a thing. And forgive me if my voice sounds a little bit rough. I am still dealing with the after effects of COVID. Have had a couple coughing fits tonight, but it's nothing out of the out of the ordinary for me right now. And as of, as of the past couple days, it's kind of the standard but i am getting better so i thank you all out there for your thoughts and prayers on that and your words of encouragement to keep going those are very much appreciated every time i get them um i did get some of my uh some of my fans out there did send me a gift card and i do appreciate that we've been using that for uh other things that we need here at the house i know it was for the video card but I am trying to make sure that we have all of the supplies that we need here. So to the, those of you that did send me that gift card, I do appreciate that. Anyone else wants to try and send anything as gifts to the, uh, gifts to the, sh the uh, show, uh, we do have an Amazon list that you can buy items for if you want to. We have a wish list that's up there of some of the stuff we're looking for, but if there's anything else you would like to send us, maybe something that you would like to have us review or something like that, we would be more than happy to do that and we would be very gracious that of any support that we receive. So, why is the United States leaving going to make this a much more interesting fight? Well, to start with, if the United States wished to support the Pangaea resistance, they could choose to do so now and not have to worry about th uh, having threats to their own troops that are on the ground there and not have to actually deploy more of them. Although, to be honest with you, I do not think the Biden administration has it in them to either support the Pangaea resistance or to deploy more troops. That's just me saying this. That's my thoughts on this based on what they've done so far and based on their reluctance to try and send any more troops in even when things were going bad so but like i said i have nothing to back that up on it's just based on what i have seen as precedents from the biden administration now the Panjir resistance again it's most of the people that are there are former Northern Alliance members. They were guys that fought against the Taliban uh, when the Taliban were in power up till 2001, with the exception of their leader, Ahmad Massoud. Ahmad Massoud is the son of the leader that was the leader of the Northern Alliance, Ahmad Shah Massoud. And he was known as the Lion of Panjir. I mean, he was the Lion of the Northern Alliance. He was in an area that was never taken over by the Taliban. They were able to expand a little bit from the Panjir Valley when he was in control, but not much, mainly because he didn't have the force and he didn't have the capabilities to do it. So what is the Panjir resistance up against? Well, according to 
the research that I have done and what I have found out, the Taliban in their 2021 offensive brought about 60,000 troops into the country. 60,000 armed fighters. And I can't really call them troops. They're not. Most of these guys, yeah, they might have some training from the Taliban, but for the most part, they're just Mujahideen fighters that are go out there, cause a little bit of trouble, and usually run away. They usually don't have the best of training out there, and for right or wrong, that you know they can fight. They're very tenacious fighters, but at the same time, they're not professional soldiers. <clears throat> Most of the countries that have professional military wouldn't accept any of these guys as quote-unquote professionals. Uh, these guys at, at best are mercenaries. At worst, are pretty much just a paramilitary group. If you've seen some of the people here in the U.S. that have no military training but yet call themselves a militia or something like that, or that they're a bunch of guys that are out there, you know, if you know if the shit hits the fan, they're going to be the ones to defend America. But they have no military training whatsoever, have no idea tactics, that sort of thing. Think of that as what the Taliban really is. You know, they've, they've got the tenacity to do it, and they've got the wherewithal to fight. But they don't know tactics, they don't know strategy, they don't know how to win a war. Aside from just keep fighting until the enemy gives up. And there's past precedents of that working against the United States. Look at Vietnam, for example. If we sit around long enough, eventually they can just wait us out. And I believe the Taliban even said that they could just wait us out and that they would be able to succeed in this. But with those 60,000, they also had about 200,000 paramilitary people that were all throughout Afghanistan. Basically, people that were loyal to the Taliban that were just waiting for this to happen so that they could come out and with all this brand new weaponry that they just got from, that the Americans and other allies left behind, especially anything that was left to the Afghan National Army, they now have a very large stockpile of weapons. Anything from M16s, AK-47s, RPG-7s, uh, a bunch of different Humvees, even some aircraft, although it's hard to tell what they have as far as aircraft. They may have gotten their hands on some MI-24s and some UH-60s. Uh, there was a group of aircraft that did fly out with the last president of Afghanistan, Saleh, when he fled to Uzbekistan, and those are still there, but there's no telling what aircraft actually flew out. Uh, if they did not get the uh, the uh, coin aircraft, the uh, close support aircraft out of there, that might be a little bit of a problem, mainly because it's a fixed wing aircraft. It's not a jet, it's just a uh, prop driven aircraft. Consider it more looking like a P-51 than anything, to be honest. But it was designed for air-to-ground combat. And in the area that it's at, it's actually very well suited for it. The MI-24 is also well suited for the terrain. It's done it before. The only problem that it had then was Stinger missiles. Uh, if you want to look at some of my previous podcasts, uh, one of my previous podcasts or the video of it, just take a look at its MI-24 uh, tank killer or Stinger bait and 
yeah, it's kind of one or the other. <clears throat> so, we don't know what the Taliban has. And I also don't know what their ammunition stockpiles are for all of these weapons. Do they have rockets? Do they have ammunition for all the different guns that are on these things? Was that some of the stuff that was left behind? Uh, do they have any advanced weapons? Like, are, are there any precision guided munitions that were left behind? Any anti-tank rockets that could be, uh, that are wire guided or radar guided? Are there any laser guided munitions? Um, the reason I ask about that is one of the specific aircraft that was taken, the Afghan National Air Force had tested it with a laser-guided bomb. So was that stuff left behind? Are there laser designators to actually designate a target? That could make things a lot more difficult for the Pangaea resistance if the Taliban has that. The Pangaea resistance was supposed to have supposedly also got some weapons themselves, mainly because a lot of the people that fled to Pangaea a lot of them were Afghan National Army commandos, the ones that actually did fight against the Taliban during this last offensive, but just either got outgunned or they just had no support. And thus, what are they going to do? Sit there and die? No, they're going to try and find a way to retreat and fight another day. And that's exactly what they did. But they brought a lot of their stuff with them. Uh, we're seeing, they're seeing like D30 uh, artillery pieces. They're seeing anti-tank guns, uh, anti-aircraft guns. They have their own stuff that they were able to acquire before the Americans left as well. Just not as much. They didn't have as fast to get it. Uh, the Taliban had plenty of time to pick up what they needed to before we left. I mean, any base that they came across, you know, if they've already won it, they've got their time that they can just go in there and pick out what they want. And we were seeing plenty of them with M4s, M16s, with optics, all these other things. And they were picking up one after another. So that is a very disturbing sign that they have a little bit more advanced weaponry, but hopefully they don't have the ammunition for them. And there's no telling of what ammunition stockpiles they were able to get. The other interesting note is that this is turning into a little bit of a possible proxy war at the same time. And the sides that we're seeing come into this, Russia seems like they may or may not want to play with this. And they keep pretty much putting pressure for this to be a peaceful end but those they're not the player that we're looking at Pakistan and China both have interest in Afghanistan Pakistan because they are one of the biggest supporters of the Taliban if the Taliban are winning then so are they China wants it for the mineral wealth and also just another way to flip off the US for their failures there India sees it as a way that they can actually get some sort of uh, some sort of ally in the region. Right now, they're fighting against both Pakistan and a little bit of China. China, since they're a much larger, and India is a just on the brink of becoming a world power themselves, the likes of China at this point. They're starting to butt heads with each other, including some border skirmishes that 
dealt with artillery fire and also aircraft showing up. I mean, when you all of a sudden are having mirages and J-20s showing up, you've got the makings for a bad battle. India has made overtures to the Panjshir resistance. Now, whether that means they're going to actually send weapons, or if they're going to actually send fighters, or if they're going to actually, you know, bring advisors in, that's to be seen. They're going to base this up of whether they think the Panjshir resistance even has a chance to win. And if they don't think they have a chance to win, they're not going to throw their you know, hat into the ring because they just don't want to piss off Pakistan that much. I mean, they're willing to do it. They're willing to piss them off. They have the army that can do it, but they just don't want a bunch of pissed off Taliban all of a sudden arming a bunch of terrorists to come back at India. So they're going to be cautious there. But if it looks like they can somehow get a win out of this and maybe become, you know, one of the big allies for a new Afghanistan, they're going to be all for that. And more than likely, they will probably start supplying them with arms for their new military, if that happens. You also have Tajikistan to the north with their own people wanting to actually support the Panjshir resistance. Now, you're probably wondering why the citizens of Tajikistan would want to support this. And as I said in the last episode, the hope in the Panjshir, most of the people that are there are ethnic Tajik. They're the same they're basically the same people. They're the same type of people. Afghanistan is a hodgepodge of a bunch of different groups. You have the Pashtun and the Punjab. You have the Tajiks. You also have the Uzbeks that are there. You have a bunch of these other smaller little groups that are around there. But the main two are going to be the Pashtun and the Tajik. And they really do not like each other. As I said before, there's a lot of tribal alliances that are dealing with this whole situation. And with the Pashtun being the ones that have been the power brokers for the longest time, this is where that is starting to come to a head. Matter of fact... The people that are considering themselves right now the leader of Free Afghanistan are asking for the arrest of Hamid Karzai because they believe that he has something to do with the whole Taliban uh, resistance that they've been facing this entire time. If anybody is uh, familiar with the history of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai was the one that we helped create as the president of Afghanistan after we took over the country from the Taliban before. So, and as I've said before, he is not a good guy. Hamid Karzai is pretty much a dirtbag. Matter of fact, him and his brother have pretty much been running Helmand province in Kandahar with their tribe. They've been the leaders of that tribe, but there's also rumors that they're very big in the opium trade. Which, if that's the case, that's how they're getting their money, that's how they're getting their power, and more than likely, that's why they still have any alliances with the Taliban, because the Taliban have been using opium trades for decades now to try and make sure that they have money coming in for their Mujahideen fighters. So, these are some of the sides that we have going up to this. And... It's going to be very hard to tell what is actually going on. A lot of the Western media, a lot of the Western journalists are not in the area. They've pretty much gone. 
and I don't blame them. Taliban do not like outsiders and anyone that is seen as a Westerner is considered a threat and that's happened before. That's why before 2001 it was very hard to get information on Afghanistan. There just weren't Western reporters there. The Taliban run with an iron fist. Uh, They have a very, it's an extremely strict and conservative version of Islam that they practice. And they're going to go back to the exact same thing. So you're going to see everything from women not have, not being able to go outside unless they have a male escort with them. And by the way, that could also include a child as the male escort. It does not have to be an adult. And considering that women, you know, it, it, let's put it this way. You can have a five or six year old child be the male escort to to escort their mother around. That's the kind of stuff they used to do before. And this is going to be no different. The Tajiks want to have a unified government that has nothing to do with uh, a makeup that's based on different tribes. They want a unified Afghanistan. The Taliban are trying to negotiate with them and saying, don't worry, we're going to have a representative government. A representative government that is basically just going to be a rubber stamp for the Taliban, if they're even allowed to vote in any sort of elections. I mean, it's very hard to have a free election when there's a guy standing there with a gun pointing it at you going, vote for this. So it's pretty much going to be going back to what it was in 2001, or pre-2001 anyway. There's still more information coming out about how bad Afghanistan is turning. Uh, It sounds like Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and ISIS-K are starting to work together. And as I have said in remarks before, there is no way that there is no intel that says that that they don't work together. Even if they are somewhat enemies of each other, they're going to look at this as what is the greater enemy that they need to fight first before they go head-to-head at at each other. I mean, we've seen this happen in history many times. Vietnam and China do not like each other. But against the United States, they were willing to let bygones be bygones, and the Chinese were supporting Vietnam during the Vietnam War. But not to the same tune that the Russians did. And that came to a head in 1979 when... China and Vietnam had a border war against each other because Vietnam did not support the Khmer Rouge and China did. So just because, you know, just because they don't like each other doesn't mean they can't work together. It just means that the hostilities between the two will be delayed until there's another reason that they can, you know, fight each other. So that is kind of what we have got. It's going to be very strange to see who has what power. The Taliban have been trying to make incursions in there. In fact, there was one apparently today that was repulsed. They were saying it was a probing attack, and it sounds like there were heavy casualties on the Taliban side. No telling what that actually means, depending on the force. 
they've already stated who their commander is going to be that is going to be trying to take this region and there's no telling how many he's got that he's going to be bringing in you're not going to bring all 60,000 Taliban fighters into the region it just doesn't make sense they want to control the rest and they got to make sure that there's no other resistance movements that are throughout any of the other provinces which Panjir resistance keeps saying that they do have allies throughout the rest of Afghanistan. And if that is indeed true, then the Taliban may have an uphill fight against the exact same thing that they had been doing the past 20 years, which is a guerrilla campaign. If you can keep doing this, they don't have the resources with which to fight a guerrilla campaign. The United States was pouring money into it, and we were able to withhold, basically we were able to hold the Taliban at bay the entire time without them really gaining any ground. Anytime they would gain a stronghold, we would launch an offensive and there goes their stronghold. So the Taliban trying to fight a guerrilla campaign against their own people is going to be even tougher. And I, to be honest with you, if it goes to that, depending on the force that they have to deal with, I don't know if they have the capabilities to actually win it. But the Panjir resistance... I don't know which way they're going to fight this. They seem to be able to hold that region, and they have made some incursions around it, but I don't know if they can actually hold any more territory or bring any other allies on, unless they get some help. If Tajikistan allows their own people to come across and actually assist the Panjir resistance, that might bring an influx of brand new fighters that were there. And a lot of the Tajiks in Tajikistan are going to remember that it was Afghanistan Mujahideen fighters that came to help them during their own civil war. And despite the fact that the ruling party that is in power in Tajikistan was the one that won and they were against the Mujahideen, a lot of the people will still remember that it was Afghan fighters that came up to support them. So there's still there's a little bit of a cultural heritage there that they're going to have a memory of that they were going to want to support this. There were rumors that Tajikistan even did an airdrop of weapons and ammunition, but the one source that I've seen on it is kind of sketchy, so I don't know if that actually happened. They were showing the wrong type of aircraft. It looks like they were showing a C-17, which the only aircraft, only cargo aircraft that the Tajikistan Air Force has is an AN-26, and it doesn't look anything like a C-17. They do have helicopters, but, you know, they look like just about everybody else's helicopters over there, MI-24s and MI-17s. They're not really going to be useful for doing airdrops unless you're dropping small amounts. If you bring it in and land it, maybe you can bring in more stuff, but they're saying airdrops, so that leads me to believe a large cargo aircraft, and I doubt the AN-26 would have taken off for that. I don't think they want to risk their only major cargo aircraft. Especially since they can't get any fixed-wing aircraft of their own because the Russians won't allow it to be sold to them. Uh... Tajikistan has a very, very strange constitution in how it works. Uh, They do have an army. They do have an air force. And like I said, it's primarily a helicopter force. They do have some fixed-wing trainers, but they don't have any fixed-wing aircraft. 
because the Russians have said for a long time now that they will take care of the air defense for Tajikistan. And they're, according to the Russians, there is simply no need for them to have any fixed-wing fighters. So they don't even have a MiG-17, MiG-15, anything. Which, very strange considering all of their neighbors are pretty much armed to the teeth with very advanced fighter aircraft. You've got Iran, which even with what they've got, still has better than Tajikistan does. You have Pakistan with the JF-17, and they're trying to get the J-10, I believe, as well, but they also do have F-16s. And then you have India, which has the Mirage 2000. I think they have the Rafale. They have their own aircraft uh, that they're working on. So they have a modern air force. Then you have China next door, which has anything from the J-11 to the J-16 to the J-20 um, and so on. So you have a very large amount of modern, or for the most part, mostly modern aircraft around them. And when it comes to the Russians, the Russians can bring anything from their you know MiG-29s, Su-27s, all the way up to their Su-57 felons to defend the area. So they could bring whatever they want to the table. And with neighbors like what they've got, I guess they're not too worried about it, but, you know, they've had wars. In fact, they've had a... It looks like they've had a border skirmish or two between one of their neighbors, which is Kyrgyzstan. So I kind of wonder if withholding the aircraft is Russia's way of trying to keep yet another one of their old provinces from having a war with another one of their old provinces and trying to keep the peace in the region just by not giving them the toys to play with. So how much force does the Pangaea Resistance have? Well, the Pangaea Resistance has anywhere between 6,000 to 16,000 troops. There's the numbers keep fluctuating. They can't figure out what was brought to the table, what was brought in, uh, how many of the Afghan National Army actually escaped in, how much does Ahmad Massoud have under his own command, and any other warlords, what did they bring in? So you're having to deal with anywhere of around 60 to 260,000 Taliban around you with about 16,000 on the high end. That's not even 10 to 1 odds. That's higher than that. So they have a very large uphill fight that they're going to have to deal with, and it's going to be very interesting on whether they can actually pull this off. So let us go in and let us answer some comments that have come in this last week and some of the weeks before. So this is my chance to give some of you guys a shout out for actually commenting on this stuff. We did have some comments come in today and I would like to see what those are because I haven't responded to them yet. There we go. Okay. One of them, and this is Matthew Brebelay. 
He says, my employer sells a lot to French expatriates in Taiwan, so whenever we send them the label, says Taiwan, Republic of China, which shows the weird way things are. I tend to think China wants to keep their population believing that Taiwan belongs to them, and those things would mean having to act. I think it's all about inner image, but your theories has some really good points, and I wouldn't be surprised you're right. And this is talking about the who is afraid of the big bad slam ER, or the big bad slammer. The reason I am saying what I am with it is because China is acting very, very angry about the fact that 165 missiles could upset the balance of power in the region. And that's clearly not the case. They have way more force than anybody else. And if they were really worried about those, they would probably be more worried about the fact that Vietnam now has SU-30s and also has submarines of their own. Not to mention the fact that Japan is trying to create a 6th gen fighter and South Korea is getting some of the best that the Americans can provide. So the fact that they're worried about 165 missiles, something else is going on there. And I kind of think it's that despite their numbers, China's a paper tiger. I kind of think that they're not as good as their numbers claim they are. Their weapons may be good, but I don't think they have the training to actually use them right. Uh, They haven't shown the capability to do it. Their exercises, they never really do any that are outside of China. So if they don't know the ground, if they don't know how to do um, expeditionary ops, this is going to be very difficult. They're pretty much just set up to defend their borders against, I'm guessing, South Korea, the Americans, and the Japanese. After that, I don't think they can defend somebody. And even then, they can only put up token resistance, but that's because they're going to be on their own turf, and there's a lot more people there. So could they put up a good defensive against us? Yeah, they could. You know, you have over a billion people. How many people can we, how many troops can we send at them? Even if we sent our entire population, we couldn't beat them. If they sent theirs entire population, I mean, four to one. So when you're dealing with that, that looks like they aren't as good. And the fact that they still keep having these little border skirmishes with India kind of makes me wonder whether they are actually the power brokers they think they are in the region anymore or if that is slipping to India at this point. So what other ones do we have? Uh, Well, some of the last ones were dealing with one video that I didn't advertise. It was uh, combat ineffective reacting to President Biden's remarks. Uh, I've already said all I can say there. I don't want to add more to that. I have MV Santos, who has replied to the uh, Hope in the Pangeer. He goes, he he put up a link that said 300 Taliban are reported dead and that's how good this Northern Alliance are, but they need support. I replied with, from what I am seeing, it sounds like India wants to support them and Russia doesn't. Tajikistan is mobilizing their own troops on the border with Afghanistan right now as well. And that is actually true. Tajikistan not only mobilized their troops, but they've actually done combat exercises near the area as a show of force. So it's going to be very interesting of whether or not they're going to be 
they're actually going to come into this. Let's see, what else do we have? We have from classic gaming sessions, we have pretty interesting subject matters subbed, and I thank you for that. Um, that's one of our one of the people from a uh, another stream, which you should go check them out. Classic Game Sessions actually does some pretty good gameplay for classic games. Um, let's see if they actually have their. Yeah, I could put theirs in the uh, I could put their link in the uh, description for this, but they need they could use a little bit of support on that. I also have my buddy Mookie over there, which. Uh, him, he's been supporting me for so long here, and he could definitely use some more people coming over there. I can also put his link in. I do want to thank all the people that have been supporting this channel, and right now I think we're very quickly closing in on 300 followers on Twitter. That is just an astonishing number at this point. The fact that we have are coming close to 300. I'm about to check the numbers now. I haven't seen them in a few hours, and the last time I checked, it was 286. So it was getting fairly close. Looks like Twitter is having a fun time trying to log in right now. So let me take a look at it on my phone instead. It's always nice having two different ways to do this. And it looks like, according to this, we're still at 286. So that is still a very good number. I am just happy with it. I don't know why Twitter's not loading there. Let's see. Yeah, I'm wondering if Twitter's having problems because I can't access it right now. But anyway, that, like I said, that's actually very good and I'm actually very proud of the number that I've got. Uh, our numbers last week were great with the videos that we had. Uh, the Hope of the Panchir Valley has been doing incredibly well. It had, last I checked, 37 views uh, and most of that was in one day. I do appreciate that. All of you that are listening, we do have other different ways that you can listen to this podcast including Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. So be sure to check all of those out. Any of those that you prefer, just try them there. If you wish to support the channel, you can go to Anchor, I know for sure, and there is a way that you can actually uh, provide support to this channel. And that will allow us to get better equipment, um, Provide, get licensing for different items, different videos, different software, different sound effects, stuff like that. We would be able to get the uh, much at get view much more value for the this actual podcast and for the videos when they come out later on. So I want to thank my Patreon members out there especially my general level patrons of Richie and Sergio Suarez. Without your guys continuing support, even through my hiatus and everything, this channel probably would not be able to continue going, and I cannot thank you enough for that. It is just a tremendous amount of support. Uh, as far as everything else goes, I do just want to thank you all for sticking with me 
and supporting my channel, including all of you small YouTubers and small streamers that are out there that have been throwing your support behind this channel as well. It is very much appreciated. If you want to support this channel, you can either do it either through uh, Anchor or you can do it through Patreon. We have quite a few different ways that you can support this channel. We thank you, everybody, and you all have yourself a good night, and we will see you on the next episode of Combat Ineffective, The War Room.